Hello and welcome to Spirits of the Law, a podcast for those who are called to the bar. I'm your host, Matthew Naylor. As always, I am joined by the founder of the Sarah Lehman Law Group, Sarah Lehman. Hello, Sarah. Hi there. It's been a little while since yeah. we've had a podcast. It's good uh, to see you, Matthew. Yeah, I've been out at PLTC, the professional legal training course, uh, and that has been... Well, you're studying hard. Just a treat. It's been just a nonstop barrel of laughs uh, beginning to end. Sure. And uh, we are very blessed to be joined today by... <laughs> I don't know if blessed is the word, but you sure. know, it works for me. Yes. <laughs> Mark Marison, uh, the founder of Burrard Strategies. Strategy. You only have one. Just one? All right. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. But it is Burrard Strategy. Burrard Strategy, a uh, consulting firm, a political consulting firm in downtown Vancouver, uh, Mark, thank you so much for being here. No problem, Matthew. It's good to see you. It's and good to see you too, Sarah. Yeah, thank you. All right. Good to see you also. <laughs> Mark, Mark was actually the guy who gave me my first job in politics. He like, was working for Stefan Dion. Yes. There you go. Was... And I've given you your first job in law. So we uh, have something in common. Well, let's so have a drink to, to that. Cheers, cheers to that. <laughs> so, speaking of, what are we drinking today? It is. Something to help uh, people get over their election day hangovers, uh, and we've partisan themed them because I like theming. Mm -hmm. uh, so we have for uh, the Liberals a Caesar, a nice red Caesar. Very Canadian. Uh, for the New Democrats, a lovely bright orange yellowy screwdriver. Mm -hmm. Lots of pulp in there. And for the Conservatives, a bottle of blue Gatorade because it is very, very difficult to find blue beverages, and blue curacao. I've been, I've been sipping from the orange cup, but I assure you that I don't do it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so today we're going to be talking about two things. Uh, one is the election and how this election is going to affect the legal landscape uh, across Canada, uh, how the changes in the regional representation is going to uh, play in terms of how our justice policy unfolds uh, and what this might mean for the Liberal government going forward. And then we're going to be moving on to a discussion about the year of cannabis, a year in review. It has been just over one year since the legalization of cannabis came into effect and, well, what a year it's been. <laughs> so, the election. Uh, Mark, you was so kind to join us because uh, we happened to uh, run into each other on election night. Uh, we were both at the Liberal Party's victory party. Uh, thankfully, it was a victory party that evening. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you think the election means for the Liberal government going forward, Mark? I think it means that um, we just need to take a bit of stock to reflect on why we lost some of our seats um, mm -hmm. and why we, uh, why we got shut out of... Um, of Saskatchewan and Alberta, and I, I, I don't want to use the word West because I don't think that it, it's a word that's really um, applicable to the modern Canadian society. Um, but I do think we have to reflect on that. I think we also need to reflect on sort of the civility um, we have in the in, in our in our discourse during during this election. I think that this election was probably one of the more disturbing uh, elections from the from the viewpoint of of, of how people uh, have. Debated these issues, and I think that the Canadian public um, was not that excited about anybody, mm -hmm. and and we've got to we, we got to do something about that. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of 
like weird apathy around who to vote for, you know? Like lots of people who have always voted traditionally one way their entire lives were a little bit torn about who they were actually gonna cast their ballot for on the election day. So yeah. that was really surprising. I mean, I felt a little bit of that as well. I mean, I stayed true to my usual leanings but (laughs) but you know there were still other options out there that people were kind of like looking at and flirting with so what happened well i think i think that we're also seeing a a, a, the communications revolution happening it's still it's it's still at at a pretty brisk pace and um, there is no common sort of uh dialogue going on Mm -hmm. uh in our society anymore and we're finding that um, a lot of uh, the, the, the political leaders were just speaking to their own um, sort of bubble. And there needs to be a way to break through all of that for really good, effective national leadership. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're a, a communications and strategy expert. How do you think the prime minister needs to go about reaching out? Um, well, one of the things could be structural. Um, there's one thing, one thing that, that, um, that the prime minister did and his team did that... Um, with, with all the good intentions, was they got rid of regional ministers. Mm-hmm. Um, there used mm-hmm. to be somebody in the cabinet who was accountable for the political um, sort of status of the province, what the regional concerns were. And now mm-hmm. now the, the, the prime minister is going to have to appoint, like, like, there's always somebody from each province in, in the cabinet. Mm-hmm. So he's going to have to appoint somebody for Alberta, mm-hmm. and somebody for Saskatchewan. Mm-hmm. And those people wouldn't just be there to sit as, a, let's say, a defense minister or a veterans minister or a health minister or whatever, right. that person would be that province's voice right. around the cabinet table. So when there's something that the premier or the stakeholders or the municipal leaders or just the general public in that area um, are concerned about, that person is not only um, there um, to, to listen, but there, it is their job to be on top of this so mm-hmm. that when any kind of uh, decision in any department comes up uh, to cabinet, that if there are regional sensitivities at play, that it's their responsibility to speak mm-hmm. up then and to make sure that those views are, are, are taken into account. Now, it's because they got rid of all those regional ministers, um, it's hit and miss whether or not that minister may be even on top of those those issues because they have so many other things to deal with. Right. Um, and so I think it's really important that, that, that there's somebody accountable for that in each of the provinces. Yeah. So, like, one, one of the challenges that I think... Uh, needs to be addressed is how that, that regional representation and how the interaction with the provinces is handled. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. In the last cabinet, uh, Justin Trudeau appointed himself to be intergovernmental affairs minister uh, and was running the relations with the provinces out of his office, which, in my personal opinion, was a bad call because it, it like, the prime minister has quite a bit to do uh, and it is traditionally a, a you know, position that occupies an entire ministry, the Ministry of Intergovernmental Affairs and the President of the Privy Council, uh, they uh, eventually moved that responsibility to Dominic LeBlanc uh, to have this sort of good cop, bad cop relationship with, with Trudeau and LeBlanc uh, doing uh, provincial relations. Uh, do you think that both the kind of adaptive federalism in cabinet that you've just talked about uh, with having regional ministers uh, how, how that will complement how the federal government will be reaching out to, um, in particular, Alberta and Saskatchewan. But, um, it's not know. just important for Alberta and Saskatchewan. It's important for British Columbia. Mm-hmm. It's definitely important for Quebec. 
Um, our country is extremely complicated, and the further away you are from the center, the more this kind of thing is needed. Because what, what, what would happen in the past is that at, there's a re minister's regional office downtown Vancouver. All the stakeholders here in Vancouver could go and they could have a coffee with the person that was working there or meet with ministers there, et cetera, et cetera. Um, folks in the Toronto, Montreal, Ottawa corridor can afford a cheap plane ticket or, mm -hmm. a, or just drive to Ottawa to go to meet with people. Um, people from British Columbia are not going to spend the $2,000 to go off and pe see people in Ottawa. Yeah. It's as simple as that. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And I know that, I mean, I'm from Alberta. Right? Yes. Like, I was born in Fort McMurray, Alberta. My family is still there. And I can say that, like, you know, the day after the election, my entire Facebook feed just blew up with this whole Alberta separatist movement. It's like Alberta feels like they're so slighted. And then we have Jason Kenney, who's out there kind of stoking the flames. You know, I think that we're in a little bit of trouble with it. But I, I don't know if it would be enough just to have a representative... No, well, you need habits. somebody that you would need somebody that would be extremely skilled, yeah. and and with probably a reasonable amount of political experience, mm -hmm. um, to do that in each of the provinces. They used to. This isn't the first time that certain provinces have been um, left out of the cabinet. Under Pierre Trudeau, in 1980, I think the entire west, west, the entirety of Western Canada, except for maybe Winnipeg. I think Lloyd Axworthy yeah. was elected. I think that was the one person elected west of Thunder Bay, and so he had very talented ministers from British Columbia with. Um, uh, Senator Jack Austin and um, Ray Perot, I believe, was one of the senators. But they were, they, they, and they were, they were people with, you know, a long history of political experience. Right. Yeah. So how how does that work in terms of getting representation from Alberta and Saskatchewan into cabinet? Uh, the, like, well, the one way to do it. Or? Well, the one way to do it is to just appoint somebody really good to the Senate, mm -hmm. and then and then put that person in cabinet. Now, there's a senator from British Columbia named Senator Wu who just argued today that that would be a bad idea because the Senate should be, um, that it, would, it, would, it would be yeah. counter to the nonpartisan nature of the, right. of the new Senate appointments. Right. I, I would just disagree with him in the sense that uh, why would you appoint people randomly to, to uh, cabinet? And I would think that cabinet ministers should be at least representing one of the houses of, of parliament. And actually, I think this whole idea of, of denying partisan people from serving in the Senate is, is, a, is a little bit ridiculous. Yeah, that's an odd move. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, it kind of excludes anybody who has any type of like political background. Yeah, it, it's in favor of academics or other people that are, are sort of not as, uh, not as sort of uh, on top of the, sort of the, the will of the people. Right. Yeah, and, like, and I think that there is a, a case to be made to like, get those type of people into the Senate, but I don't think that making the Senate exclusively a body that only has academics, only has people who are not willing to put their name on a ballot in, in some form or another uh, in the Parliament uh, is, is necessarily the way to go. Um, and it, it would go against the, the convention like to, to just appoint someone to cabinet from Alberta and Saskatchewan and not have them sit in the Senate. It would go work, like which office are they going to work out of then? Mm -hmm. Like, like th these guys all have to like deal with each other. Do they suddenly like just create some office for some dude like in Parliament that's not a it doesn't sit in either of the house? Like it doesn't make any sense. Put him in the room closet. Like, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, and it, it would go against yeah. the the whole principle of responsible government, where ministers must be accountable to at least one house of Parliament. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and and so there has traditionally been a leader of the government in the Senate, and there have been. Um, I mean, most recently, the uh, Michael Forte was appointed by Stephen Harper uh, to be a minister from Quebec, and uh, he eventually tried to run and get a seat in the House of Commons. Uh, I believe he was unsuccessful at that, but 
it, it did solve for Stephen Harper a kind of underrepresentation when I believe during that election he only won four seats in Quebec and and four ministers like making all of them uh, was at least at the time for Stephen Harper politically untenable. Well, well it would be ridiculous to appoint somebody, especially. Uh, for Alberta or, or Saskatchewan, let's forget about the Senate part, that was nonpartisan. Mm -hmm. Because you mm -hmm. need somebody mm -hmm. that would be be extremely adept at political the, the political process, yeah. and nobody gets that from independent action. Yeah. I completely agree with that. So how, what do we do next? <laughs> <laughs> well, what do we do next? I think, I think the next concern is a practical one, because Justin Trudeau managed to lose seats in... Uh, the prairies in, in Alberta and Saskatchewan in particular, but also... And in uh, rural BC. And in rural BC. Mm -hmm. um, for not being pro-pipeline enough, he managed mm -hmm. to lose seats in Quebec, uh, at least in part for not being anti-pipeline enough. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he, he managed to straddle that political divide for quite some time, and it has cost him seats. How is the new minority parliament going to impact... One, specifically, the development of the Trans Mountain Pipeline, uh, and to just the, the general uh, political tenability of his government. That's a good question. Um, I guess we're going to see. It's a, it's, a it's a really complex issue, and it's not just about the provinces. It's also about all of the First Nations along, along the line, um, mm -hmm. and, and about uh, rights and titles. So mm -hmm. it's... Uh, it's it's not. It's not a. It's not an easy answer to that. But I. I, I do know that. Um, that the, they probably lost more, seats over, being for the pipeline than being against it. Yeah, I would agree with that. Right. So. Where do they? Where do they go from here? Do you think? Do you think that the transbound expansion is going to, uh, go through? Is it going to be built? Or you know. Engage, <laughs> indulge, indulge me in some wild speculation. Well, here. well I, I, I don't want to speculate too much, but the, but suffice it to say that I I, I think it's been uh, they've already made it clear that there there's not going to be an, a formal alliance with any political party uh, to govern the, the country because he's got enough to probably keep going along for 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 some time. Um, so there are other parties that support him on, vari on various parts of his agenda. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe that's one of the ways that he'll get things to work. Uh, so uh, just to fill people in on what a minority parliament, the functioning of that is going to look like, Canada has never had an actual um, coalition government in the last century almost. It, like the, I suppose you can say that the... Uh, the government during the First World War was a... Yeah, Stefan Dion tried, and then he, he, he appealed to the Governor General. He should have appealed to the Supreme Court like they did in Britain. Yeah. But yes. <laughs> uh, uh, Remember that? Sorry. Yeah. As, as much as I have tried to forget. Uh, Fair enough. <laughs> those were heady days during the, the 2008 uh, constitutional crisis. Um, Though that was a, an actual crisis that happened within a couple of months after the election. The throne yeah. speech had already been voted on. Yeah. Uh, and, and so this is a, um, I, I think, was a strategic blunder by the Dion Liberals to vote for the throne speech and then within um, a very short amount of time 
declared that they were going to use their opposition day to try and bring down the government with a vote of non-confidence. Yeah. Um, in general, things have kind of uh, reduced the requirement for confidence votes uh, to be exclusively the throne speech and money bills. Um, if the government is unable to pass one of those two, uh, it's considered a vote of non-confidence, and the prime minister would, by convention, be forced to go to the governor general and resign, and either advise that the governor general uh, ask someone else to form government. And, and I think in the circumstances, it would be appropriate for uh, Justin Trudeau to advise that Andrew Scheer is probably the person who would best be able to form a coal, like form a government, even though it would probably be like one of those three-day Arthur Mead I, I, I think this is this is going down quite a rabbit hole of speculation. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. That, that I, I don't. I, I think it will be highly unlikely that anybody is going to try to precipitate an election for some time, um, because it won't be in any party's interest. Um, and and uh, that in and of itself people, it will discipline things. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would like to know, when is um, Shear's leadership review coming up? Do we have I any idea know. on that? I mean, that was a huge, huge blunder, I think, by the Conservatives, just having Andrew Scheer as their leader. I mean, the guy had no no appeal. I, I, I don't know the exact ins and outs of how the Conservative Party's membership process works, but um, if the leadership, if, if the previous leadership campaign, if those members can still vote, mm. then I would probably wait to have the review until those uh, those guys get off the membership list, because because yeah. uh, Maxime Bernier would still have a lot of people on that uh, on that list, wouldn't he? He he would have a lot of people on that list, though. I I think that, you know, even if people supported Maxime Bernier, the fact that he left the party in a snit. Mm. Um, because he disliked their policy of not having Maxime Bernier as leader of the Conservative <laughs> Party, uh, w would annoy a bunch of people. Like, no, no, but like, I was just thinking that, there's, that, that at least there's thousands of people that somebody might want to stoke um, for that kind of thing. That, that, that is true. Uh, one of the interesting things about you know looking at the last Conservative leadership uh, race, some of the, the top contenders, at least in, in terms of, you know, I know Lisa Raitt's campaign kind of fizzled out, but... Lisa Raitt uh, lost her seat in uh, Milton uh, on Monday night. Uh, Andrew Scheer is going to be facing this leadership review for, for his leadership. The um, candidacy of Maxime Bernier is going to be a very long shot because he would be returning to the party. Well, yeah, I wasn't thinking that he'd be a candidate, but he could. But that crowd could be could do some interesting things. Mm -hmm. Uh, and now, do you think that that crowd is like particularly libertarian, or or was it, like more along the lines of the the new and um, unimproved Maxime Bernier, who was more arguably white nationalist than or populist than? I, I, that's a good question. It's probably a, a, a nice coalition of all those folks. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is there much of a difference? <laughs> That, that is a good question. Yeah. I, 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 no, there I, are a lot of like mainstream conservatives. There are yeah. a lot of mainstream conservatives still, and there are some. Um, there's a lot of intelligent people in the Conservative Party. Absolutely. Um, one of the but one of the things that they've learned is that um, if they think that you can try to win an election by denying um, climate change, it's never going to happen. Yeah. So they got to they got to figure that out. And in fact, I think if the Conservatives were um, did sort of update themselves on that matter they would have been a much more formidable opponent. Yeah, and if they had someone who was a little bit more socially progressive, you know, I think what really, really hurt the Conservative Party this time around was Andrew Scheer going on record so many times as being anti-gay, 
you know, anti-woman and, and all of the rest of it. And I don't think that Canadians can really stomach it. Anymore. But, the, but the good news is, is that Pierre Trudeau put in that Charter of Rights and Freedoms, so <laughs> Andrew Scheer's <laughs> views about this aren't really that applicable. <laughs> Still, though, I just think that we yeah. find it so distasteful as Canadians yeah. to yeah. vote for somebody who has those views when it just stands completely contrary to everything that we as Canadians like to well, those issues should, shouldn't be determined by parliamentarians. They should be determined by the courts, and that's yeah. essentially what's happened in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I have a slightly different view, and that I agree with you. That I don't, I don't, I don't share those those views. But I, I'm, I'm more inclined to say that we should talk about the issues that the government can actually do something about, um, and that, um, and, and yeah, that's what we should focus on. I mean, like I'm, I'm inclined to both agree and disagree with both of you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, in part because, like, I, I think that from a political standpoint, uh, Sarah, you're absolutely right in in terms of sheer being unpalatable because people are not choosing someone like exclusively to be the guy who runs the prime minister's office and privy council office as like some abstract minister they are choosing mm-hmm. a national leader mm-hmm. and they don't want a national leader who is out of step with their values and right. that, that is 100% what Andrew Shearer was uh, to, to many people like I know mm-hmm. conservative people who uh, basically held their nose and voted green or liberal mm-hmm. in, in this election because they felt that in spite of their general alignment with conservative policies they couldn't support someone who was basing their campaign on, uh, you know, in part bigotry mm-hmm. and uh, discrimination, and and I, I think that that is uh, a very very tricky place for Andrew Shearer to to find himself in because he's on record. We have the tapes, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah, and I mean that that failed in comparison to the pictures that surfaced. Or- Poor Justin Trudeau wearing his, you know, brown face, which was, of course, the scandal of the election, I think, but, you know. Yeah, there, this election was a bunch of, like, little scandalettes. Yeah, uh, it was. Nothing really took off. And, well, it is very disheartening to look on, like, Norwegian news and see on the front page of it, my prime minister oh, in yeah. blackface, and I'm like, this, this, Canada should not in general, make the news. I don't like it when our politics makes the news overseas <laughs> because that's probably means that something has gone terribly, terribly wrong. Um, he managed to, like, shrug it off, but I, I do think that uh, he he has been contrite, uh, at least in the days following the, the election. Uh, I'm going to say something unconventional here, though, and that is that this story is a bit more complex than the way that it got framed, and it would have it's not surprising that it got framed by Americans, and I think the people that it hit the most were millennials who get all their news from their from their social feed, where mm-hmm. CNN and CBC are all the, kind of the same thing. Mm-hmm. But um, during that period when, when he did this, it, okay. I mean, it, it was a completely different communications environment. Um, you were not taking pictures for the for the rest of the world. I don't think anybody in that room had had probably been that aware of this issue, and and, and to assume that they, they, they should have been um, is probably unfair. Um, I think it's extremely embarrassing that he did that. I wouldn't have done that, um, but it wasn't the same. It wasn't the same act as it would be today, and nobody of any sound mind would do something that, like that today. Yeah. Um, but I, I do think that um, it was unfortunate that he couldn't talk about this a bit more honestly. Um, and that this uh, this is an American uh, concept that we now understand uh, much better than we did at the time, mm-hmm. but and we understand it because of the fact that we have much more um, we're, we're much more 
um, link to everybody on social mm -hmm. media, that when we take pictures, it's actually kind of a statement. Before it was just for a collection that was going to be in your, in your, in your, in your, in your, on your shelf. And that's not to take away from the fact that it was, uh, it, these pictures were disturbing and, and it was something that would, I would be very embarrassed to have done, but to, to equate it with what, with, a, um, some of this blackface stuff that happened in the United States where there was, yes. with KKK people, it was not anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, and it was Aladdin. Yeah, this was a major blunder in choosing a costume that I think was meant to be fun and jovial. And, and, it, know, was in retrospect, not, and it was extremely embarrassing. In retrospect, and, it's troubling. It's embarrassing in yeah, all of those but things. Not, but, 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 but I do think that this context needs to be said, and I, and I know it's a bit controversial to give that context, but... Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I, I talked to a lot of people from various visible minority backgrounds that mm -hmm. didn't know about this concept mm -hmm. until I explained it to them. Yeah. Um, and uh, and it's and it's interesting that it, it, the younger you are, the more it really affected you because of the fact that these kinds of cultural concepts have become more blended than they were at the time. Yeah, yeah. and and like I, I do want to draw this distinction between malicious racism and stupid racism because like both of them are racism. <laughs> But one of them is, like, designed actually to, like, be an oppressive force, and the other one is just mean and hurtful and, and ignorant. Uh, and uh, Justin Trudeau's actions where he dressed up as Aladdin and, quote, got two into Ooh. costumes yeah. uh, and, like, facepalm. But, uh, yeah, I mean, otherwise you'd smear all your makeup. But... Uh, <laughs> Well, no, the, his hand was technically also painted, so he wouldn't oh have smeared any of the makeup. It just would have, uh, it would have been fine. It would have been a wash. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. as a person who also really appreciates costumes, you know, I, I feel for him, but. Well, yeah. I'm sure he's been at le in at least a thousand. One of the things that, <laughs> no, no, I'm actually quite serious, um, because he's, he, 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 my, he's in theater. He was in theater mm. for quite some time, mm. yeah. and that's pretty normal, like. One of the things they could have done if they wanted to get really clever was just release more embarrassing pictures from different kinds of backgrounds. Like, he, he, I'm sure he's probably dressed up as a woman, for example. Right. You know, those kinds of things. Right. Uh, no, but, and, and you do that when you're in that kind of background. And uh, I mean, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but... but um, I, yeah, it does, it, it, it does contextualize the act as, like, not I am dressing up in blackface because I want... Or brownface, or whatever, uh, because as Aladdin, one. you mean? As a, as Aladdin, as Aladdin. Um, although there was that other the picture at the I don't know it was like an amusement park or, or whatever where he had the wig on, but yeah. there there were no. It was extremely. Tr it was it was troubling and embarrassing, um, and I'm sure he um, is the, is the person that feels that the most. But but I don't think it's something that would be uh, disqualifying. Yeah, and ultimately, I think the Canadian public felt the same way as yes. you, which is that yeah. we still, you know, in a large part, cast our vote for the party. Yeah. Wasn't troubling, that yeah. troubling. Well, <laughs> moving on to the next little scandalette of the election, who gets to be an insurance broker? Oh yes. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, come on! Like, if you're gonna, if you're gonna claim to be something, claim to be something more interesting than that. With all due respect, and I have an excellent insurance broker. I really, I really respect him. He's a really good guy. But it seems a bit, it seems a bit unimaginative. I think, I think that like whoever your friend is, and I'm sure they're a lovely person. That even they would say that being an insurance broker is not the most exciting thing about them. So. <laughs> Uh, and I say this as someone who was formerly licensed to sell insurance. But, like I, I <laughs> But even more troubling than the insurance broker thing was the dual citizenship. And he didn't come out with it. Well, it had to be unearthed. Um, and what's interesting is, I think, and I haven't seen any polling to this effect, 
But I actually think that Canadians probably are more troubled by a dual citizenship with America than anywhere else. Yep. Um, they're less troubled by France or England. And I think it's because we have such a close, uh, t- such close ties with the United States that it feels um, it, it feels somewhat troubling. But again, it's symbolic. I, I think the thing that's the most the more interesting fact is that. For, throughout the time that he's been a, a member of parliament, there have been lists of, of MPs that say whether or not they're dual citizen, mm-hmm. and he's never been on one of those lists, so he, he, he never bothered telling anybody this. Exactly. Um, if he was so concerned about the fact that that might be embarrassing, you'd think that he would have dealt with this a year or two earlier. Yeah, I, I mean, these are the kinds of things you think would come out like in the initial meeting. You know, like, yeah. tell us about some things. Are there any blackface pictures? Maybe are you an American? Like, but these yeah. things don't come up until all of a sudden way later in the game. Well, and, yeah. and like, Mark, you, you and I, um, you know, were both on the, the Dion campaign in so much as like you were running it, and I was much, much further down the totem pole there. But I, uh, like, immediately after that campaign, there was a you know, another little mini-scandal about how Stéphane Dion was also a citizen of France uh, because his mother was French. And um, I, I remember the Conservatives making a big hullabaloo about that at the time and, and uh, me just thinking as this Andrew Scheer thing came out was... Um, Actually, it bothered me. Yeah. It was his campaign manager that bothered me. Um, I, 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 it does kind of bother me to think that a prime minister of our country would have, a, have another um, citizenship. And I know that people might think that that is um, discriminatory, but... Um, I'm not suggesting that somebody that was a former uh, dual citizen... In fact, maybe the, the, what they should just do is just pass a law that once you become the prime minister, any citizenships you may have yeah. elsewhere are revoked. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Something along those lines. Maybe that's it. the best way to deal with it. Yeah. But uh, there's something just just, uh, just sort of just odd about it. Yeah. So I'm actually going to delve into a, a bit of a legal question on this dual citizen uh, thing, not because of Andrew Scheer, but because of Elizabeth May, who was born in America... Mm-hmm. Uh, and Elizabeth May has Elizabeth May has been very good at muddying the waters respecting her American citizenship or lack thereof, depending on how the the various American and Canadian citizenship statutes are interpreted. Uh, in particular, she was um, a American citizenship at a time, uh, and, and she was naturalized as a Canadian, took an oath of citizenship to the Queen. Uh, at a time when America was not recognizing dual citizenship. Uh, And so she has been very consistent in claiming that her taking this oath of citizenship, uh, a naturalizing act, uh, constituted uh, a similar revocation of her American citizenship. Uh, American lawyers have basically said, including some of our colleagues down in Bellingham, uh, that this isn't really how it works in America. Uh, you need a citizenship of loss of, or rather a certificate of loss of nationality in order to actually revoke your citizenship. Um, what, like, do you think that anyone who is contesting a, uh, a office of prime minister should demonstrate, like, what their citizenship history is, or? Well, why not? But then the solution of just having it so that it's automatically gotten rid of the moment you become prime minister probably solves it. Yeah. I, I don't think it really applies to necessarily to all the other MPs and ministers and stuff. I mean, I'd be, I, I also might be a bit concerned for foreign, the foreign minister or the, whatever he's called now, he or she is called now. Mi- minister of Global Affairs and yes. Citizenship, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would be a little concerned for that person as well. Mm-hmm. Well, 
from Global Affairs over to Justice. The former Justice Minister Jody Wilson-Raybould uh, was re-elected in Vancouver Granville, much to Maya Chagrin and the others on the Khaled Mo Mohammed campaign. Yeah, I mean, that looked like it was going really well. All of a sudden, it just took this turn. Well, I mean, I think most people across the country thought that she was going to win. Um, it looked like early on in the evening that Talib mm. might be winning, but then he, 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 he did lose, and, uh, mm. and that's what the voters decided. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so what does parliamentary life look like for an independent? Um, it's, it's not very much fun, um, especially for somebody that's um, now made it very clear that she, she would be extremely difficult for anybody to trust. Mm. So I, I think she'll probably, we'll see how, how, how it goes, but she'll have to take a more um, collaborative approach than she clearly has since she was, since, since she was in the last parliament. How, how would you go about getting a, a policy priority, um, I mean, like, you know, and this is my very coming off a campaign feelings about this, but, uh, you know, Jody Wilson's Raybould's primary priority seems to be Jody Wilson Raybould, but, like, how, how does she go about working with other people? And, and actually, let's expand the question. How do parties go about working together in a minority parliament uh, that isn't uh, governed by conference of supply agreement that like, I, would, I mean it would it would depend on what um, what issues she'd be bringing forward there, I think there were 10, 10 First Nations uh, members of parliament elected um, uh, so there I, and I'm not suggesting that she would just be focused on that uh, she's got a lot of other things that she's concerned about but I I, I don't know what else uh, I, I don't know exactly what would be her Specific priorities, and I and I didn't not a lot of it. I didn't glean a lot of it from from hearing from her during the campaign. Yeah, so I, I I have no idea really what her her issues were even during the campaign. I felt like she was kind of just there and trolling. I I, I find <laughs> that the SNC scandal was the probably the most bizarre scandal in Canadian history. Definitely. I think that it would have been um, great if. Um, and, and again, this is a, this is showing how communications is changing. Um, I think. 10, 20 years ago, you could start, you could, you could counter it with, because you, you have to have an argument back that's, that's really short, like a 7 or 15 second, or maybe even 20 seconds, um, for this kind of issue. And um, so to explain this, this, the fact that they were there to protect jobs in Quebec is true, but it needed to be contextualized in an ethical argument, an ethical counter-argument to Jody Wilson-Rival's ethical argument. Mm-hmm. And the ethical counter-argument is, is as follows. What Trudeau was asking his staff to do was to identify if there was an appropriate way mm-hmm. to guarantee that the bad guys got punished, that the good guys and their families had their, had their jobs and, 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 and reputations protected, and that there were measures in place to, to ensure that it never happened again. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially what he did. And if he did anything other than that, he would have been asking them to be making an attempt to obstruct justice. Mm-hmm. And the minister, um, uh, Jody Wilson-Rival, testified to the Justice Committee that no attempt at obstructing justice took place. So in my view, the moment that she said that, everything should have been shut down and nobody should have been talking about it again. Mm-hmm. <coughs> yeah, it was the most non-scandal scandal I think I've ever witnessed. Well, it gave people... And then uh, the other part that was really disturbing was that there was... Uh, that she was sort of getting involved in the day or two before the election was called in an effort, in a, in a very uh, surprising story in the Globe and Mail, to give the impression that the RCMP was investigating this when um, there's no 
evidence that that was taking place. And in fact, if there was an RCMP investigation going taking place before the Ethics Commissioner's report, the Ethics Commissioner would have um, would have uh, he would have he would not have been able to uh, do his report because yeah. um, because of the investigation mm -hmm. taking place. It is impossible for their to, their, them to be investigating a crime that she testified didn't take place. It would be impossible. I can say yes. that from the perspective as a criminal defense lawyer. Yes, yes. that would be some pretty good evidence. If so the, the problem with, 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 with Jody is that I'm sure that she has a lot, of, a lot to offer to society, but given her a limited political background from the, from the um, side of federal government politics, I'm not talking, I mean, she has a very, very strong political background in First Nations leadership, but, which, is, which is extremely important. But her lack of experience in Ottawa, I mean, I guess the thing is, is you ever watch that television program, Yes Minister? Yes. Um, in order to sort of navigate that process, you've got to be a bit... More yeah. savvy, maybe. Well, I, I mean, there's savvy to get positive results and there's savvy to get negative results. I think she's quite savvy on the negative side. <laughs> so, um, but but, um, but it's, it, is, it is actually extremely concerning because um, the... Attorney General is also the Justice Minister, and the Cabinet views her as uh, her or him uh, as their lawyer. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I, I believe that um, in some ways, Jody was uh, was treating the Prime Minister and her fellow Cabinet colleagues as if they were um, judges or fellow prosecutors mm -hmm. um, with full full knowledge of the of the legal process, and that um, and that she somehow had a non-political role and that she was somehow like a judge or something herself. Yeah. And that is not the role that she has. And if, if, if she feels that she uh, doesn't have any authority to overturn a decision of the Director of Public Prosecutions, then she believes that there's no civilian oversight to the justice system, which um, I believe is incorrect. Um, and I, I think that um, it was her duty to actually provide a more fulsome explanation for the fact that she refused to re to um, overturn this decision because, and, and given the fact that she gave the impression that she thought that she had no choice, leaves everyone to the understanding that she doesn't understand her role. Okay. Yep. Yeah, and, and, and to be clear, uh, this is a deferred prosecution agreement. Uh, please refer to episode one of <laughs> Spirits of the Law for a, a more thoroughgoing discussion of what uh, a, a deferred prosecution agreement well, but is. But I can just add one part about the deferred prosecution agreement for like for dummies or whatever, mm -hmm. and that is that um, a lot of people, including the Conservative Party, well, all the all of the people going after Trudeau about this issue, were treating it as if SNC would be let off. Mm -hmm. when a exactly. deferred prosecution no. is a guarantee that you are punished. Yes, yes. and um, it also and is a brand new process. It was just introduced in Canada, so and that was killing me the whole time she kept saying, it's never been done before, it's never been done before. Well, of course it hasn't been done before. because we just passed the law. <laughs> yes, and, and, it was, and, and that law was passed by her government, mm -hmm. um, and she was the minister responsible for, for that particular item. Um, and so if she had a problem with that item um, being passed, perhaps she could have resigned at that time. Yes, and I will say that I did not like the way that Jody treated the Charter uh, with all of the different laws that she was passing in her role as Justice Minister. I think that a lot of them are extremely problematic for our Charter rights, and I feel like she doesn't really have a, a very clear grasp on the law, and certainly not the Charter in Canada. So it's troubling. Yeah, yeah and it is that, that Charter question that uh, really raised my ire about her, her conduct. Like, the... Uh, the fact that marijuana effectively got de-recriminalized, uh, like there was a legalization and then an effective recriminalization of marijuana 
in uh, a, a different zombie form mm-hmm. um, that has managed to put a bunch of people behind bars that, for all intents and purposes, should not be there. Um, so why don't we, we move on from our, our discussion of the election? Actually, any final words on the election? Uh, well, I think this is just a good segue into kind of looking at the, I guess, the hypocrisy of the way that cannabis has been being treated by our government in terms of, you know, pardoning some people with one hand while also sending others, you know, to jail with criminal records with on the other. So it is troubling. And I think that, you know, there are some good things about the way that the Liberals dealt with cannabis. Certainly, I don't mean to be a real negative Nelly here, but that is one of the most jarring things, I think, for me as a criminal defense lawyer who's uh, running a practice and I see people coming to me with nonviolent cannabis offenses, which quite frankly shouldn't be criminal charges anymore. No. These should all be dealt with under regulatory laws, fines, you know. So how does this work? So I ex- explain this for, for your, I, I'm, I'm not, I not, haven't followed this, but, but. Yeah, so I mean, people are still being charged under the Cannabis Act with criminal offenses and lots of the penalties involve not just a criminal record, but also time in custody. So what's the criminal offense for? All kinds of things. There's 44 of them now <laughs> under the Cannabis Act. So I've had people come to me charged with all types of offenses from, you know, over-harvesting when they have licenses to harvest, but perhaps they have just too many plants. Um, and that's a criminal matter? It is a criminal matter. It's a criminal matter if they... Um, they like, there, there have been cases where people have, have uh, failed to renew their license to grow medical marijuana for a friend. Like, they, they had the skills to garden. And, mm-hmm. you know, I know as someone who has tried gardening that I am not cut out for that. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, if I was in need of medical cannabis, I would be forced, you know, and didn't want to buy it myself because of my reservations of, of whatever contents or, or uh, pesticides or whatever uh, happened to be in the, the general commercial supply, uh, I would be forced to rely on someone else to grow it for me. That uh, is permissible under the law, uh, but requires a special licensing agreement with the Health Canada. With Health Canada, and, yeah. and, and what is uh, what goes into this licensing agreement? What are you committing to do, and what is it? What do you? What kind of experience do you have, or what, what? What does that have to? Well, you do have to file a lot of different forms and paperwork with Health Canada. It takes months and months in order to get these back. And what I'm seeing is a lot of people kind of caught up in the system where they have had a previous license prior to legalization, and now they're kind of waiting to get their documents updated. But it lapses in the meantime. It lapses in the meantime, and then all of a sudden they're committing these criminal offenses according to our new legislative scheme which they're being caught up in when overzealous but if people do like does everybody else get criminal offenses when they don't do their paperwork properly for in other agriculture well why don't don't they just have regulatory like just simple regulatory fines or something what a good question exactly what we're (laughs) pitching is it just makes no sense i mean perhaps perhaps there are some offenses in the cannabis act that should continue to be there what would be an example of that well, I mean, maybe we make it a criminal offense to sell cannabis to a minor knowingly. Oh, that makes sense. I mean, that might not be great. But again, you can sell alcohol to a minor. It's not a criminal offense. It would be a bylaw offense. So, oh, I see. Okay. You know. No, but also there, there is there's sort of um, a lot of studies that have shown the effect of marijuana to young brains versus brains that are over 25, the plasticity right. of the brain and everything. So there could be an argument. There to, could be an argument the there. there. Yeah, I think absolutely. when we're protecting safety of the public and the community, there are arguments to be made about criminalizing that conduct in order to denounce and deter it. But what would be an example of that? Well, how about impaired driving? 
right? Mm-hmm. I think that the way that we have our impaired driving laws on the books right now, all of them, is horrendous. Uh, but that being said, we still have to make sure that drug impaired driving is criminalized. Right. Right? right. We can't create a regulatory. Well, you know, or, or you, know, it's, you, you shouldn't be doing that when you're working. There's a, there's a bazillion things when you shouldn't be doing it. So. Exactly. So I think that maybe there is some room for some offenses involving cannabis, but certainly there's just way too many. And when we're charging people with non-violent cannabis offenses that aren't posing any threat or harm to the community, themselves, others, whatever, we sh- like certainly shouldn't be charging people criminally while we're simultaneously pardoning others with historical offenses for the same types of things. Yeah, and, and we have l- laws that can be used to charge people who are uh, breaching that criminal threshold. For example, we have laws against tax evasion. Like we have laws that say that you can't brew your own beer and sell it if you're not a licensed brewer. Mm-hmm. Uh, like with marijuana, you're not really brewing it. Either you're a bad grower or you're a good grower, but it's not like it's going to be like poisonous or anything. Well, yeah, but like you're not you're not allowed you're not allowed to sell your home brew uh, at all. Uh, right. You, but my point is, it's not the it's not the it's not a true comparison because. Because it's probably like it's more comparable to growing tomatoes, isn't it? Like so either you got good tomatoes, you got bad tomatoes, mm-hmm. and you got good organic tomatoes, you got tomatoes with pesticide. Like, mm-hmm. but I don't know what it, how it really actually applies to uh, home brewing. And again, I think brewing is a chemical process. And this all kind of boils back down to the stigmatization of cannabis, right? Right, from being a plant to a drug. And that's one positive thing that I will say about the last year in. Um, cannabis legalization is that I think that there's been a lot of destigmatization around this plant. Um, we still have a long ways to go, but it's good to see people actually out there in the community now talking about it, coming out of the cannabis closet, you know, discussing it. Like rules around the pesticides are probably really important, and then, yeah. um, and then maybe if you're making these uh, concentrates and whatever you call those different kinds of things, um, and because I'm sure some of those sometimes have uh, some kind of other chemicals in them and stuff, to, to have really, really strict rules about that sort of thing. But the actual growing of the plant, I, I, don't, I don't quite get it. Yeah, and I mean, we do have really strict regulations around concentrates because it actually just came into effect last exactly. week. Exactly. Well, yeah, then, so then uh, that's a good thing. Yeah, I completely yeah. agree. Yeah, because I, I don't personally want to be inhaling a bunch of propane. That would be gross mm-hmm. uh, and bad for me for Tony Boyd. Mm-hmm. Um, the, look, why don't we talk a little bit about the, the new uh, rules on concentrates because, you know, that, that sweet, sweet custom stamp, that little holographic sticker that you get on your packaging, uh, has not been available for concentrates uh, up until this point. Uh, the uh, Oregon Council has, has just come down on uh, permitting concentrates and other uh, extracts uh, to be sold to the general public through legal stores. What... What are those regulations looking like, and uh, what are some of the problems for them? Well, they're extremely overly restrictive, first of all. I mean, I think that people have the most gripes when it comes to edible products at this stage, because the edibles are something that's favored by the medicinal cannabis community, people who are on pain management or treating other types of you know, medical issues. And they don't want to smoke or they can't smoke. Maybe they're precluded from smoking. But the big issue for the average person is that with the edibles, they don't know the, like what how that dose is going to affect them. So you need some kind of standardization and dosage and predictability in what you're consuming, right? Absolutely. And I think that that needs to be up front. And I think Washington has been a very, very good example of that. Because in Washington, what they do is they have a limit on the dose per serving. So it's 10 milligram limit per serving, but you can buy, say, a chocolate bar, 
that's divided into 10 little 10 milligram pieces, you know what you're getting, but you can have 100 milligrams in that bar. So someone who knows their dosage can tailor themselves appropriately. But the way that our government has approached it so far is very paternalistic. And I think we need more education around what edibles are like. They're different than, of course, the flower. And we also need to make sure that people are dealing with them safely uh, for themselves and also for, you know, children. Uh, we don't want kids using those. <laughs> Pets. You know, one of my friends just had their dog eat an edible candy the other day. Like, it was a horrible experience. So I think people need to get much more educated around, you know, how we use these products safely. But we also need to strike a proper balance for those of us who need you know, not myself, but other people who are, you know, medically dependent on THC, a higher dosage, and we need to accommodate those people within the legal framework. But what's the, what's the thinking behind this massive use of plastic to package all of these, like, yeah. single <laughs> joints and things like that? What, is, there, is there another way that that could be approached which would be a bit more, um, I don't know, environmentally green? friendly? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Green? I don't, I don't know. I, I, I can't possibly think of any way... That we've been able to sell a customs controlled tax product in uh, individual packaging that would, uh, like, I I don't know. I, I simply cannot think of any way that we Is this the reason why we have to ban plastic straws that all that production is now gone into, <laughs> right? into these things? God, I miss my straws. But that was actually one of the campaign points that Elizabeth May had during the election was that um, she said that, you know, if the Greens were elected, they were going to make sure that they had better cannabis packaging, more eco and more green. I can definitely get on board with that because it's ridiculous. I, I have to say, like, of the cannabis products that I have purchased since, like, they have come in these giant clunky containers. Mm -hmm. uh, and I... I You'd think it was the best saffron from Persia or I, something. I, I for kinda, sure, <laughs> I mean, yeah. I kind of like the containers because they're really good at, for keeping spices in afterwards. <laughs> well, at least you're recycling them and putting them into, you know, repurposing them. Right? So that's positive. But most people aren't. They're just throwing them in the trash. Then they become plastic waste floating in our oceans and going up turtles' noses. <laughs> so it's not good. We took literally like the greenest, most organic, natural plant, and now we've created a pollution nightmare. Yes. Yes. So cannabis legalization in Canada after one year, there's positives, there's negatives. I think that a lot of people would argue there's more negatives than positives. Well, yeah. <laughs> but it is good. It is good, though to show the world that somewhere it can be legalized, even if there's a lot of issues surrounding it. And it is good to be able to um, know that you're buying uh, legal products from folks that are not part of organized crime. I mean, it's, I think people feel much better about that. And, and I, I think uh, providing those resources to, uh, our, to, the, to the treasury for, for, for the people is better than just going in the hands of some folks that are that we're previously breaking the law. Yeah. yeah. Now, instead of buying it from the Hells Angels, you can buy it from the Donnelly Group. <laughs> Which is amazing. Yeah. And I do think that the approach that we've taken as Canadians to it is very unique. I mean, we've made it legal across the entire country at a federal level. Mm -hmm. So that provides us with some legal protection. I mean, we saw this play out recently in Quebec. We've had the Quebec provincial government say, you know, you can't actually have any home grow for anybody, although our federal laws allow for plants, um, and the courts have found uh, after a charter challenge that actually what's happening there is the provincial law is encroaching upon the federal law, which is a big no-no. So there is going to be some degree of federal protection here because of the method in which we enacted this. And also these issues are, it's really interesting, like um, back in the late 60s, uh, divorce and, and homosexuality 
as the, as the term that they used at the time. Mm -hmm. And all these things were extremely controversial issues. And then suddenly um, everything became accepted. Yeah. Gay marriage, uh, it was only a couple of years before gay marriage was instituted. And it was because, of course, it wasn't because of Parliament. Mm -hmm. um, it was only a few years before that that happened that Parliament voted unanimously that marriage was between a man and a woman. So I think that this marijuana thing, I think um, there is opposition to the legalization of marijuana, but nobody's going to go back. No. There's no go-backsies now. We're just going forward. That is in part because there are a bunch of former conservative ministers who have gotten, uh, you know, ankle, hip, waist, you know, shoulder deep in the medical cannabis market or the recreational cannabis market. Julian Santino, for example, who is the former minister of, uh, associate minister of national defense and minister of veterans affairs, uh, is someone who is now the... Uh, chairman or, or associate vice president or some, some, you know, executive of a major recreational cannabis company. Uh, the, yeah, I, 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 I mean, that's part of a factor, but the biggest factor is that a majority of Canadians support this. Mm -hmm. and, yeah, of course. And, of course. Uh, and, and there are some people that are loud about it, but they're the same people that were, that were loud about, um, about gay marriage and that's mm -hmm. all petered out now. Yeah, completely. So again, a step towards destigmatization, I think it's a huge one, and I'm very happy to see how many people are coming out and saying, you know what, I use cannabis, or I did use cannabis, and it didn't kill me, so here I am. And in fact, I don't think it's ever killed anybody. I don't think it's ever killed anybody. I think you're right. There you go. Unless they were operating <laughs> heavy machinery or driving yeah, yeah, yeah. Which you yeah, shouldn't yeah. do. Or but if you, but you shouldn't yes. do that, but if you do do that, you know what you have to do. You have to... Call the Sarah Lehman Law Group at 604-900-9211. And there we have it. <laughs> Thank you so much, Mark, for joining us for this episode of Spirits of the Law. You're very welcome. It has been a ton of fun uh, talking with you. Uh, Sarah, it's been lovely seeing you again. I am looking forward immensely to when I can get back to work. Uh, and uh, I am... Very excited to be putting this episode out. Uh, Spirits of the Law is a production of the Sarah Lehman Law Group. It is produced on, on the traditional unceded lands of the Musqueam, Slavitooth, and Squamish peoples. Uh, and if you have any questions, please do follow us on social media. Our Instagram is Sarah Lehman Law. Uh, and you can also find us on Facebook. Just search for Sarah Lehman Law Group. And Twitter, Sarah Lehman Law. There you go. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Is there anywhere that you can find Berard Strategy online? Yes, you go to berardstrategy.com. And I should also mention that, um, though I'm not a lawyer, I'm also a senior advisor at Macmillan. Um, so you can look me up at macmillanvantage.com as well. Thank you very much. Good night.